Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week, Free the People's very own Logan Albright talks about his new book, Our Servants, Our Masters, and how it is that government paternalism screws up everything. Check it out. Today in studio, we have none other than Logan Albright, who is uh, uh, performs almost every possible function at Free the People. So this is a, a celebration of one of our own. Welcome, Logan. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, uh, fans of Kibbe on Liberty over the past couple of years know that I've joked about Logan um, as he's been sitting behind the set uh, doing sound. You realize that that there, now, there will probably be no sound in this episode whatsoever. Yeah. I'm well, I was going to say, if the sound now. works on this, it means that I probably don't need your services anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, we've replaced you with a robot, basically. Fortunately, I can do other things. Yeah. But you uh, uh, you have been um, our staff writer, staff researcher. You do sound. You have written the music. I actually wrote the music for this show. Yes, so those of those people that listened to that that guitar riff at the beginning, that was that was you playing and performed, yes. And uh, what else? You you're a, you're an economist. Yeah, my role has evolved a lot over the years that we've worked together. Yeah. I've done a lot of different things, which is good because I have a short attention span and I like to do different things. So and most I never importantly, never get bored doing yeah, this. Most importantly, you're the the free the people house mixologist, right? And you're really not a credible organization without House Mixology. Which reminds me, I have a new cocktail bar I need to take you to. Nice. Sometime we need to do that. Uh, but but you are on set today because we are celebrating the, the release of your new book. And and I notice that your name is, is much bigger than the title. Well, which, they, the folks at AIER know what's important. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, like, I mean, everyone's going to snatch that up the moment they see your name. Yeah. It's called Our Servants, Our Masters, How Control Masquerades as Assistance. It is a very libertarian book, and we will get into it in a bit, but you just got back from Ireland. Yeah, I had a nice little week and a half vacation in Ireland. I saw Dublin, Galway, and Kilkenny, and got a taste for Irish whiskey while I was over there, which I can't help but notice we have some of today. Oh, what, a, what an accident, a happy accident that you know, is. things just work out sometimes. So I'm a big fan of Irish whiskey, and I've spent a little bit of time doing empirical research in, in Ireland. And um, depending on my mood, I like it I like it better than Scotch whiskey. Not all the time, but it's a much smoother drink. And it turns out that there's there's government reasons why that is so. But let's let's choose one. So we have uh, Red Breast 12 Cast Strength or Red Breast, some sort of Irish name that, that I can't pronounce that is finished in sherry casks. I think we got to go with the cask strength, don't you? I feel like that's uh, that's what that's what a real man would do. Yeah. So t- so tell me uh, you had a conversation with a bartender. Yes, so as as all good Irish visits involved. I was in an Irish whiskey bar as you do when you're over there and drinking various types of Irish whiskey and uh, the bartender came over and was interested that I was from America and he wanted to tell me the story of why and I don't know if people know this, but Irish whiskey is spelled with an E. It's W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. Scotch whiskey is spelled without the E, just K-Y at the end. Um, and he said there's a reason for that. And uh, the reason that he told me, and you have to take the story with a grain of salt because it was told to me by an Irishman in a bar. Uh, but the reason he told me is that the Irish have always distilled whiskey in traditional copper pot stills. And that's how they thought whiskey was made. 
And at some point, someone invented the column still, which is what we use in America for the most part. And they were showing it around to the Irish. And the Irish said, well, that's a cool trick, but it's not it's not whiskey. Whiskey's made in copper pot stills. So this is more efficient, but it's not the way we do things. So get out of here with your column distillation. So they took it over to Scotland, and the Scottish really liked it. They thought it was great, and they started distilling scotch in the column stills. But the Irish were angry about it, and they said, if you're going to do that, fine, but you can't call it whiskey because it's not whiskey. That's not how you make whiskey. So the compromise with the, the Scottish changed the spelling of the word whiskey by taking the E out, and that's why Scotch whiskey doesn't have the E in the name because it's using a different distillation process that the Irish insist is not technically whiskey. I did not know that. And an American whiskey has the E, correct? Yeah, the American whiskey has the E. Canadian whiskey does not, and I have no idea why that anomaly exists, but American whiskey does have the E. I, I blame. The, the government corrupts everything, and mm. I assume that, that it has something to do with the corruption of the word whiskey. But I, I, was, I was reading um, when, when I was in Ireland— and I was reading up on this today because not every story that a drunk bartender in Ireland tells you is, is true, but it turns out this one was. I was at the distillery that makes Redbreast, which is a classic pot still Irish whiskey and, and delicious, by the way. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's very good. And he was telling me that the very nature of Irish whiskey is a result of, of government overtaxation and overregulation. And, and uh, one of the many iter- iterations of, of the British crown trying to tax the, the living hell out of Irish and Scotch whiskey was a malt tax. And, and Irish whiskey, of course, is made with a blend of, of uh, I think, mostly unmalted barley. Yes which is why it tastes so different than, than most typical Scotch whiskeys. And it was a, it was a way of, of working around the, the nanny state and, and the attempts by the government to finance all of their wars with, uh, by, with whiskey taxes and, and that kind of thing. And so there's one example of an unintended consequence that created a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, I like that story because it shows the way people have ingenuity to get around government regulations and find ways around them and innovate around them. And I think that's great. I don't like the story because it implies that something good came out of a tax. But I think it is true. I have read that elsewhere. Call it call it uh, human ingenuity yeah. instead of the unintended consequences of a government tax. Yeah. But, you know, like the entire history of whiskey, and, and we talked about this with uh, with Lawson Bader, who, who is a partisan Scotch whiskey <laughs> drinker. But yeah. um, the entire history of whiskey from – that the moment that man discovered this this beautiful nectar has been the government trying to control it um, because it wasn't just a delicious drink back then. It was a way for people to um, store their crops over the winter, and they turned it into whiskey, and it became a, a store of value and a means of exchange and, and it essentially became money. Yeah, it is interesting how much of the history of the world and the history of governments can be traced through alcohol production and the attempts to regulate and diminish alcohol consumption. So your your uh, your book actually has a lot of uh, my favorite school of economics in it, Austrian economics. That's right. Which may be why we've worked together for so long. Might be. It's possible. Uh, you name drop, drop Hayek and Mises and, and, and someone that I don't hear as much from, Carl Menger, and I suspect Carl Menger would, would have an opinion about uh, whiskey as a means of exchange and a store of value because he he was he was the founder of the Austrian school 
who did a lot of work on the question of money. Mm. And he basically said, and I think this this theme in one way or another um, threads throughout your book, he basically said that money's whatever people want it to be. Absolutely. And then Mises had a whole treatise on money. It, it was one of his first big books about, and he had this theory that money has to start as something that has intrinsic value. It, it, like paper money couldn't have just started as paper money. It had to start with gold or something that people actually value for its own sake. So whiskey is a good example of that because people like to drink whiskey, but if you're not going to drink it or if you have more than you can drink, you can trade it for other things. So, um, and, and Menger wrote extensively about Bitcoin, as I remember. <laughs> yeah, he didn't quite predict Bitcoin, but uh, I think he would have been interested in it if it had come around during his lifetime. So give us the theme here. Um, this, uh, this sounds sort of ominous. Our servants are masters. What, what are you writing about in this book? So this is a book that's about language and it's about hierarchies. So I know you're a fan of George Orwell and I am as well. And he talked about how important language is to culture. And in 1984, the government has invented this whole new language called Newspeak that attempts to strip out words that people could use to potentially be revolutionary. And his theory was that if you don't have a word for something in a language, it's harder to think about it. It's hard to, harder to communicate it. It's harder to use that word as a weapon. Um, and it restricts the ideas that people have. And I think there's, that's partially true. I mean, we can also, we can think about things that we don't have words for. I'm sure you've had that experience of trying to express a thought that you don't have the right word for. But I think there's something to it as well. And the words we use matter. The words we use inform the ideas we think. And uh, I wanted to look at the phrase public servant, which you hear a lot, and really look, dive into it and see what people actually mean by it. And when you look at people who call themselves public servants, more often than not, and this isn't all the time, there's plenty of good people out there who call themselves public servants, but more often than not, the term is a euphemism for people who are trying to tell you what to do with your life, trying to control how you behave. Yeah, it's a, I, and I think, like, I, I can imagine all sorts of public servants um, that probably wouldn't use the phrase because it's self, it's, it's almost self-aggrandizing. It's right. like, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm, I'm doing it for you. Honestly, I, I really have your best interests in mind. Right. And I, I don't benefit at all from this. And, and every single politician and every single bureaucrat and, and every single dictator usually embraces that I'm doing this for you right. kind of thing. And what I find interesting about it is it's a, it's a hierarchy that's been turned on its head. And if you listen to someone like Jordan Peterson, he talks a lot about hierarchies and he says that hierarchies are inevitable in any kind of form of life. And I think that's true. There's all kinds of hierarchies that exist and they're not inherently bad. They're necessary to get things done. We have a guest on the set here. Um, but this is the first book endorsement that Rourke has ever done. Yes. By the way. So it's a, it's a, a, it's a big deal. And I'm a big fan of him. It's a big deal. And, you know, cats are libertarians and dogs are communists. So if a dog was endorsing your book, I probably wouldn't even be talking about it. Yeah. And I heartily endorse your theory that cats are libertarians as well. I'm very much a cat person. As he gets into your whiskey. <laughs> but as I was saying, um, hierarchies aren't a bad thing. Like we have a hierarchy where at Free the People where you're in charge and I'm working for you, but it's because we're, mutu we're exchanging mutually beneficial services. We've agreed on this voluntarily and it works for both of us. And that's a good thing. But hierarchies go wrong when you don't recognize them for what they are or you try to turn them on their heads. And I think this public servant idea, this pretense that people in roles of government or roles of authority are actually working for us is very dangerous because you're tricking people, you're deceiving people into thinking that someone who's actually in charge of you, uh, you think that they're working for you when they're really not. So when, when I was reading this book, and, and by the way, it's a little hard to take you seriously with, with a big fluffy gray cat on your lap. But yeah. It works you know, for Bond villains. 
and and Hemingway. I mean, yeah. so there's a there's a tradition. <laughs> um, it seems like, you know, when I read your book, I I, I was kind of reminded of of the Matrix because you're you're kind of red pilling us here mm. because the entire mythology of of government and authorities says that that certain people can be trusted right certain people are smarter than the rest of us certain people are less self-interested than the rest of us and and some people just know better and and that's the 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 whole premise of of certainly big government yeah um that that we're gonna we're gonna sort of do what's good for you even if you don't even know that it's good for you yeah and I think the goal of the book is largely to just get people to re-examine the way they think about the world. You know, a lot of people who write these kind of books, they have a political message in mind. They want to uh, convince you to vote for somebody or support a certain policy. That's not really the case in this way. I just want you to rethink about the way you think about the world. Um, I think that the way you affect change in the country or in the world is through public opinion, and it's through having a change in mass consciousness. I don't really think voting does all that much. Um, I don't really think um, kind of these isolated issue campaigns do all that much, but I think if you have a massive shift in the way people think about fundamental truths, that's how you really affect change, and that's a, that's a heavy lift. It's not something that's easy to do, but my little small goal with this book is just to get people to, to think about the phrase public servant and when they use it to take a moment to reconsider what they're actually saying and what, they're, what it actually means. I think we can even assume that that any politician that throws around that word too much probably has has more um, sinister aspirations. And and one thing about your book, you you take it a step further than even public choice theory, which which argues that that when it comes to political action, um, political actors and both elected officials, bureaucrats, and even people that lobby the government. Um, you know when they when they say talk about the public interest, they're really talking about their personal interests. Yeah. But I feel like you take it a step further and, and suggest that there's there's almost something sinister and manipulative about about people that want to tell us how to live our lives. There's an urge that exists in a lot of people, and I don't really understand it myself because I don't have it at all. But there's an urge that people get upset if other people are living in a way that they don't approve of, and they want to change it, they want to fix it. They want to force people to conform to the way they think they should live. And a lot of people have this urge. And, you know, I know you love to talk about Hayek on this channel. He has this whole theory about why the worst people rise to the top in a democracy. Um, and it, it's that people with that urge, the people who have the urge to tell you what to do, to run your life for you, they're the ones who are motivated enough to go through the hell of running for office and trying to get into positions of power. Because people who want to leave people alone don't really have that much of an incentive to go through the, the crazy nightmare of trying to become an elected official. But someone like Hillary Clinton, who has outright said, you know, I want to I want you to live the way I want you to live, basically. Um, she's got a big incentive to t- spend all that money, spend all that time, spend their whole lives effectively trying to get in a position where they can enforce their will on the people. Yeah. So let, let's talk about a couple examples, because there, we'll start with some extreme examples that, that you talk about in the book. So that that people understand what we're talking about, and and we just had our friend Lee on the show talking mm-hmm. about growing up under Mao's China, and you tell some of the stories um, that that Lee has spoken about about sort of that 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 godlike attitude that Mao had towards his own people. They they weren't they weren't equals in any way. They were they were really cogs in a in a machine that he was going to manipulate from the top down. Yeah. Um, 
I think that's a really important point because to me, one of the reasons that I'm a libertarian and I, is I, that I really think that there's something special about the human mind and the human spirit. I'm not really a religious guy, but I would say that there's something like a divine spark in human nature. And uh, one of my favorite political theorists and economist, Murray Rothbard, had this line about how if men were like ants, there would be no reason to care about freedom. Because if we were all just, you know, unthinking automata who go to work and come home and breed and die, there's no, no point in actually caring about freedom because this, everyone's the same. We're not all the same. We're all unique. We all do different things. We all have this creativity, creative energy inside of us that leads us to do great, inspiring, wonderful things. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why when you have people who are totalitarians like Mao have be, or like Stalin or any of these communist states, they're very hostile to religion and they want to supplant religion because if, if they view you as a unique, special, divine spark individual, they can't then view you as a cog in the machine, a tool just to be plugged into a certain slot in order to realize their vision. And I think that's kind of the mindset that goes into these totalitarian leaders. They, they don't think you're special. They think you're just like everybody else. You're all just numbers that can be rearranged in an equation to realize their vision. You know, actually, um, a couple of years ago, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods and an and in, in unapologetic uh, free market capitalist, was debating a Marxist professor. And I, I'd never heard of the guy, but supposedly he's one of the top professors. Uh, and he was at some Ivy League school, of course. And it, it was shocking to me how much he conveyed what you just said. He, he very much viewed society as an aggregate chunk of stuff. It was, mm-hmm. it was a singular um, thing. And, and when, he was, when he was crunching the data on stage, he didn't even mention the fact that he's talking about people. Right. And, and, he, and, and the whole idea was to manipulate and, and get people to do what he wanted them to do. Because he was talking about so-called excess wealth. And he, he really didn't have any way to sep- separate it out be- right. because he was just looking at the it's aggregate. It's not your wealth or my wealth. It's just wealth that it's exists wealth. out there for some expert to then move around to where they want it to be to create yeah. the most efficient allocation, according to them. But, you know, Mao didn't just think he could manip- manipulate the economy. He thought that he could manipulate Mother Nature. And you tell that story. Yeah. Um, and this is a story that's been told on this channel before, but it's it's shocking when you hear about it, just the hubris of it. You know, he would try to redirect rivers because he said this river doesn't go where it needs to go, where I want it to go. I want to make it go over there. Like that's a huge engineering challenge to try to redirect a river. People don't realize how much goes into the formation of a river. Why a river is where it is. It's there for a reason. It's there because it's on a rocky bed where the water can flow past. Um, what Mao did was redirect the rivers using people, slaves, essentially digging ch- uh, channels for the river to go through. But because it wasn't a rocky foundation, it was just soil, the river would just sink into the ground and disappear. So you had all the water just dry up and go away. Um, he was worried that the birds were eating all the crops. So he instructed all the, and ordered all the Chinese children to get up every morning and go out and kill the birds that they could find. Kill all the birds you can find, um, which is crazy. That's It's an insane lunatic plan. But not only is it an insane lunatic plan, it doesn't work because birds serve an important function in the world. That's why they're there. And the birds, it turns out, they eat the locusts and the pests that would otherwise destroy the crops. So without the birds, the crops all got eaten by pests and everybody starved to death. And you have yeah. the greatest mass famine in human history. Yeah. And I, the reason I like or uh, am appalled by that story, I, I like telling that story because I think it explains to uh, young people that, that really don't think about the world in terms of economics, but 
would be horrified to imagine um, some government authoritarian um, mandating from the top down. Today we will kill all the birds. And like, it's, it's crazy, but it's, it's more than crazy. It's evil because he's, as you were saying earlier, these, these, these communist governments replace religion with the state yeah. as God. And in this case, Mao was God. He, you know, he wrote her little red book and, and if he said it, it must be true. And the consequences were, were a humanitarian disaster. Yeah, and they don't even give you the courtesy that religion gives you of saying that you're made in my image and you're a special, unique individual. Yeah. They just say, you, you work for me. Yeah. That's it. The, but so everyone agrees that that's bad. And I, I'm assuming that there's even, even the most ardent socialist in this country would hopefully admit that Mao uh, committing birdicide was, was a horrific thing. Um, but it applies to almost everything the government does to manipulate our behavior. Yeah, it's all based on them thinking they know better than the rest of us. And I have a section in the book on economics, which is a, may seem a little bit out of place with the rest of the book because not that many economists call themselves public servants. But there are some economists who work for public policy institutions or universities or governments. And there's this whole new school of economics called behavioral economics. And basically the goal of behavioral economics is to find ways to get you to change your behavior so that there is a more efficient outcome, according to the economists. Um, economists love to optimize things. You, they make you study calculus in grad school because they think that you can optimize things. And so these behavioral economists think they can optimize society by changing human behavior. And what they've done is they realize that they can't outright force people to do what they want them to do, uh, not easily anyway, but they think they can manipulate them using psychology. So there's this kind of fusion between psychology and economics. And the key proponent of this is uh, Cass Sunstein, who wrote the book Nudge. And I find this a really evil concept because what he's saying is we're going to subtly rearrange your environment. We're going to move things around in a certain way to basically trick you into doing what you want. we want you to do. So there's things like, well, we want people to be organ donors uh, when they sign up for their driver's licenses. And right now, if you want to be an organ donor, you say, I want to be an organ donor. Uh, but they say, well, instead of doing that, let's say you're automatically an organ donor unless you want to actively opt out, knowing that most people are lazy and most people won't actively opt out. And that, you know, kind of sounds a little bit benign because it's just changing an opt-in to an opt-out. But the goal is really sinister because what you're doing is you're you're just trying to change people's behavior through very subtle ways that they won't even realize that they're being manipulated. They won't realize that their behavior is being changed. And they do things like um, in school lunches, they want to put the healthy foods up front and put the unhealthy foods in the back to try to trick kids into eating the healthy foods first. And a lot of these things don't sound like a big deal on their own. But you end up with a society that is aggressively trying to manipulate its citizens into behaving a certain way instead of letting people make their own choices and letting people do what they want to do. As, like you think about actually applying that concept to something like uh, music and, and musical choices and, and the government deciding what you can and can't listen to. That also sounds absurd, but history says that, that it actually, um, you know, Castro banned the Beatles for instance. And Soviet the, Union is infamous for the amount of approved music and unapproved music that they had. You know, all the great, there's all these great modernist Russian composers like Shostakovich and, you know, they're, they're fantastic artists, but they were not allowed because they were too modernist and they weren't traditional and they weren't nationalistic enough. Uh, so yeah, you, the government controlling art is always a big part of trying to manipulate people's behavior because art is inspiring. Yeah. And art inspires people to think new thoughts and have new ideas and do new things and maybe even to revolution. And we can't have that. We got to keep everybody comfortable and safe and uh, complacent. So you, you mentioned uh, um, 
economics and 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 the chapter is really about Austrian economics and and this idea um, that the the Austrians push push which is methodological subjectivism yeah and and explain that and and how that applies to this this idea that you can top down decide people's behavior okay so First of all, I should say Austrian economics is a branch of economics that was founded in Austria, unsurprisingly, by Karl Menger, and uh, it was taken up by Friedrich Hayek, and it was taken up by Ludwig von Mises, and it's a branch that really stresses human action and human behavior as opposed to numbers and math and equations and optimization. Uh, and they don't teach it in school. I have a master's in economics. You have a master's in economics. They don't teach it in universities. You have to go out on your own and find these texts and if you want to learn the style of economics, because they're more interested in teaching you statistical methodology in school nowadays than actual teaching you how to think about how humans behave and how humans act. Um, and the key insight to Austrian economics is that we all have a scale of values that's different from each other. And what I value is going to be different from what you value. And there's no objective way for me to say what I value is better than what you value. So if I prefer to drink Irish whiskey and you prefer to drink scotch, there's no way to say you're wrong and I'm right. We can just say they have different preferences. And so any kind of effort to optimize across individuals to try to get people to do what's efficient can't actually succeed because you have no way of knowing what is right for each individual because each individual has his own preferences, his own scale of values that's going to be different from everybody else's, and only that individual is in a position to evaluate whether something is good or bad for him. Yeah, and it, it applies to, to all of these attempts to socially re-engineer people's behavior. I, I think a lot of people would be confused as to why what Cass Sunstein proposes is so insidious. And it's because nobody wants the same thing. And nobody knows what people want unless the very process of people figuring stuff out is allowed to is allowed to proceed. There's a great line from Mises in a couple of his books, actually, that I use all the time, where he talks about irrationality. And people often criticize economists for saying for assuming that people act rationally and I think there's a confusion between the word rational and the word logical um, but Mises says rationality is your ability to make a decision or take an act with a aim to achieving a specific goal and he says there is no such thing as irrational action it's a contradiction in terms because if I act to achieve a goal and you disagree with my goal you can't say that I'm irrational all you can say is that you disagree with my goal so if I choose to drink water and you choose to drink wine, I can't say that you're wrong for wanting that. I can just say I would do it differently in your place. There's no way to objectively, from a third-party standpoint, say what that guy's doing is irrational. You can just say, I don't agree with what he's doing. I wouldn't do it if I were him. So and this is one area where I disagree with Mises because clearly wine, good wine, is, is better than water. I, I feel like that's objective. I think it, that's true. It's yes. sort of like the cats versus dogs things. I yeah. mean, there are, there are truths that that I will not subject to the uh, the whims of the masses. Right. And whenever you have something that people are, are criticizing as irrational, it usually comes down to majority opinion. It's the majority says we don't like that, therefore we're going to classify it as irrational. The whole history of mental illness is based on this concept. It's a political concept. It's not a medical concept. It's the idea that we have a majority against you. We don't like what you're doing. Therefore, what you're doing is crazy. Therefore, we can persecute you for what you're doing. And you've seen this all throughout history. The Soviet Union did it like crazy with political dissenters, people who were not loyal to the party, people who were capitalists. They said they didn't just say we disagree with these people. They're wrong. They said these people are crazy. We're going to lock them up in institutions. And they and they wrapped it in the language of science as if. Yeah, exactly. That's the insidious thing about it. Simply true. Mm -hmm. um, 
And people don't know up until 1987, I think, uh, homosexuality was listed as a mental disease in the American Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that psychiatrists use to classify mental illnesses. You could be involuntarily treated for being homosexual. You could be force-fed pills. You could be given shock treatment um, against your will because you were considered to be deviant in a way that was scientifically, you know, was scientifically provable that your behavior was wrong, crazy, irrational. Yeah. You said 1987? 1987, which is insane. Yeah, yeah. The let that sink in for a minute, and that, and I think that applies to. I'm, I'm, you know, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about uh, one of my favorite political whipping boys, uh, Jeff Sessions, and he apparently has announced that he's going to run for Senate. He mm. just, he's like a zombie. He won't leave us alone. He just keeps coming back and back and back. When you think he's finally gone, but the. The, the one thing he said that just pissed me off as, as someone that's, that's been involved in, on the patient side of healthcare quite a bit, um, you know, he said good people don't smoke marijuana, which is, is a fairly objective scientific assessment <laughs> of, of who should and who shouldn't. Yeah, and I don't know where Jeff Sessions gets the moral authority to decide that from in the first place. We should point out that there's an immense amount of construction going on in your alley outside of your studio right now. So yeah, well, I assume it's Jeff Sessions yeah. about to uh, raid the studio for trash-talking him. The, uh, but, but the other one, which, which I think is, is even more dangerous, is when he announced his war on opioids and, mm. and the governments, and, and it wasn't just him, but he was, he was the cheerleader for all of this. He, he had this idea that, and he, he said, um, people take too many opioids. Mm -hmm. America takes too many opioids. And so he's, he's sort of aggregated this all. There's too many. And the government policy today is, is cutting the aggregate production and distribution of opioids, legal opioids, the right. kind that you get in the hospital during surgery. And I forget what the number is. They've, they've cut it in by some dramatic way. And he's like, you just don't need them. In fact, you should, uh, like, for some surgeries, you should just bite a stick. <laughs> and it sounds moronic. It's, it's barbaric. It's, it's crazy. It sounds moronic, but, but he's making this, this, this sort of value judgment that, that people just don't need these things. And, and we as libertarians would say, you know what? Um, I have no idea what you should be doing with your life. Um, if, if you're a friend of mine or if you're my spouse or if you're my son or daughter, I'm certainly going to express my opinion, but but this idea that you would um, impose your your sort of personal preferences on someone you've never heard of is just like I, I think that's just awful. Well, pain is the ultimate subjective experience, right? There's no way to experience another person's pain, whether it's physical or mental or whatever. And the idea that you can say, well, I know that you don't need those opioids because I I can assess your pain better than you can, is is just insane. I don't know why anybody thinks that they're able to make that judgment. And I have a section in the book on medicine, which may seem a little strange to people because, you know, we think of doctors, again, as public servants, people who are there to help us. But the, the observation I like to make is, like, have you ever lied to your doctor? Everybody's lied to their doctor. Everyone goes into their doctor afraid they're going to get in trouble for not eating right or for not exercising enough or for smoking too much or for drinking too much. You do not tell your doctor about those Flaming Hot Cheetos that you eat as, well, as a Well, I don't meal. go to the doctor. So, but even if I did, I would not tell them about the Flaming Hot Cheetos that I love so much. But... Like, you don't lie to your servants. If you have a cook and you say, I want two pork chops for dinner, and the cook says, no, you're only going to get one because I think you're being unhealthy, that cook is fired. You know, you find another cook. 
But with doctors, we don't have that option. Not only we don't really have a, much of a choice when it comes to doctor selection because of the extreme measures the government and the AMA go to to limit who can become a doctor and how you get the license to become a doctor, but the doctors themselves serve as these gatekeepers that decide what medicine we're allowed to have, what, what treatments we're allowed to have. And in some cases, they're, they're basically extorting you. They will say you have to engage in these certain behaviors or else I'm not going to give you your prescription. Uh, and these are not just for, I mean, I, I am talking about opioids, but I'm also talking about non-addictive, non-habit-forming, non-dangerous drugs, things like penicillin or uh, blood pressure medicine. There's no reason why these shouldn't be over-the-counter drugs. But in order to get these life-saving medicines, you have to go get a, the approval of a gatekeeper who's a doctor, do what they tell you to do, pay what they tell you to pay. Um, if you don't behave in the way that they approve of, if you're overweight or you're too old or you engage in risky behavior, they can deny you insurance, they can deny you treatment, they can deny you payment. And it's it really limits your ability as a free American to choose your own path um, in terms of how healthy you want to be, what measures you want to take to protect your own health. How, how loud is that? Uh, it's pretty loud. You guys are dominating. So we, we have... We have some sort of major catastrophic hap event happening right outside the studio, yeah. so you'll just have to bear with us. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think you're being a little too tough on doctors because I think, I think it's uh, government manipulation of the of this, the uh, distribution of, of medicine and healthcare that has turned um, doctors into bureaucrats. Yeah, and I, I want to point out that it's, I'm not really picking on the individual doctors because there's a lot of great people who are doctors and people tend to go into medicine with the idea of helping people um, and the Hippocratic Oath and all that. But what I'm, I'm using it as a shorthand to d discuss the medical establishment, the yeah. bureaucracy, particularly the AMA. I think the AMA does a lot of damage. Um, they limit who can become doctors. They limit uh, your choice because they won't allow doctors to advertise. Uh, if you want to change your doctor, it's hard to find another good one because there's no advertising. There's no way of knowing who's good and who's not. Uh, so well, my insurance really doesn't allow me to go shopping for a doctor. Once you yeah. once you get one and they actually accept your appointment, you you cling to it with your with your cold dead hands. Sure. And, and that has everything to do with, uh, um, in my case, Obamacare, but certainly the entire three tier system where where insurance companies make decisions for us. So I. I just think I feel like individual doctors um, um, to a person that I've met, um, they, they they got into this into their profession because they want to serve patients. Yeah, and it's it's that manipulation that that creates that. I think I think the same thing applies to teachers. And we're always yeah. picking on on the teachers union, but it, we we should be more careful about distinguishing between teachers that that are doing something that is. It's one of the one of the coolest professions, um, I think. But they've become bureaucrats. I like to pick on teachers because it makes everybody mad. Everybody loves teachers, and whenever you pick on them, everybody just like it's like kicking over an anthill. Everybody just goes crazy. And how dare you attack teachers? But yeah, in all seriousness, it is it's the the education bureaucracy that basically stems from the Department of Education, which was founded in the '70s under Jimmy Carter. Um, but it also stems from just the, the basic compulsory education laws that we have in this country where you are, as a child, up until the age of 18, you're legally required to attend the school from a certain period of time in your life, most of your life, and you have no choice. You, and usually your school is determined by where you live, not by what school you want to go to. 
Uh, and I think that's what one of the problems we see with uh, with kids today is you you know we have all these mass shootings in school and everyone says we have to get guns out of school we have to get guns out of school I think maybe we got to get the kids out of the schools because you don't see mass shootings happening in McDonald's or hot or uh, shopping malls or playgrounds or places where kids hang out uh, you see them happening in schools and the reason I think this is just my theory is that kids can't leave they're stuck there day after day with people who bully them, with people who torture them, with uh, a system that t- incessantly tests them and compares them to other children and publicly humiliates them. And there's no escape. There's no way out. And so, of course, some people are going to get pushed past the breaking point in that system. So you agree with Roger Waters from Pink We don't Floyd. need no education. I would change it to we don't need no schooling because I think education is a wonderful thing. But I think schooling all too often is just babysitting and uh, conditioning to, to behave in a certain way that is approved by society and not actually educating. I think you can get a far better education by going elsewhere. And and to, to make it personal, your your parents were smart enough not to force you through the, the public education machine. Um, you are a product of unschooling. Explain yes. to people what the hell that is. So my parents both had a very unpleasant time in school. And when they had children, they said, we really don't want to subject our kids to that. And they did a lot of research. And there's this philosophy called unschooling, which is founded by a guy named John Holt, who is an excellent writer and researcher and educator. And everyone should read his books if they haven't. Um, but the idea is basically that children are natural learners. And you can observe this if you've ever been around children uh, before they get to school age, like five and under. Kids absorb knowledge like a sponge. They're interested in everything. They're fascinated. They like ask a four-year-old boy about dinosaurs, and you'll hear you'll be there for hours, hearing more than you ever wanted to hear about dinosaurs because they love learning. Um, and if you just let them explore their interests and live their life in the world, they will learn a lot, and they'll learn what they need to learn, and they'll learn more than they will if you stick them in a windowless room for eight hours a day and say you're going to study math and you're going to study spelling and you're going to study geography. Uh, and you're going not only are you going to study these things, you're going to keep to a rigid timetable that is determined by your biological age, which really is meaningless because everybody develops at a different rate. Everybody's brain develops at a different rate. Uh, just sticking kids at the same age together and expecting them all to be in the same place at the same time completely ignores the reality of how humans develop. So how, how did that work out for you? It, tell me. Tell me how this method, you know, this theoretical method that that kids can figure stuff out. Uh, what. Where did it take you? So I didn't attend school at all um, until I went, was 18 and I went to college. And I spent my time reading a lot. Uh, I did some math workbooks because I wanted to be good at math because I was interested in it and also because I wanted to be able to pass the SAT and get into college. I read a lot of history. I read a lot of other things that I was interested in. I studied Latin in high school. Um, and at some point I decided I wanted to go to college and get an education there. So I did. And I got good scores on the SAT. I got good grades in college. Uh, After I finished in college, I went to music school and studied music for a while. And after I did that, I went to graduate school and studied economics. And now that led me to where I am here. But I never felt behind. I never felt like I was missing out on anything. I always had all the knowledge I needed. And the most important thing is that I learned how to teach myself things. So if I ever ran into an area where I felt like I was lacking or I needed to catch up, which didn't happen often, I could. I knew how. I'd go to the library, get a book before the internet, or on the internet, go find a site, learn it, learn it in a, a week, and then I'm caught up. You know, and I think you'll find things that things that kids spend years studying in primary school, elementary school. If you give them time until they're ready, 
if, if you wait for their brains and their interest and their intuition to be ready for it, they can pick it up in a flash. A couple days, they got it. There's no reason to like force a kid who's six years old to learn to read for two years, when if you let them wait till they're eight, they can learn to read in a couple weeks. Yeah. It's amazing. They used, they used to be sort of a core American ethos, and, and it just, in, just the sort of entrepreneurial ability to figure stuff out mm -hmm. and work through a problem and find a solution. I, it's fascinating in old Eastern Bloc countries, we, um, we do a lot of speaking in, in, in former Soviet countries. That is so loud. It's just loud. getting louder and louder. I think there's a garbage truck right behind this, this studio. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Oh, so when you go to former Soviet Bloc countries, one of the things I've noticed, particularly with older generations, people that, that were born under communism and and educated under communism, they don't have the ability um, to critically think their way out of a problem. Yeah. And so, and, and, it, and it can be silly mundane things. You know, you're at a conference and, and the sound system's not working and, and people just stare at each other, they don't know what to do. Um, whereas Americans at least used to be able to just like, as ah, a problem, we'll figure it out. And and I think I think public education one of the one of the one of the crises in public education is that um, kids don't really know how to think anymore because they're not allowed to think. Absolutely, I studied Russian in college, and one of my Russian professors told me the story about the Soviet Union dissolving, and I haven't been able to independently verify it. I've looked it up, but I haven't been able to find anything on it, so I don't know if it's true. But I found it a great story, so I'm going to repeat it anyway. Um, he said there was shops that would sell various items like bread or food. Uh, and they, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the Soviet Union had always set prices. They said, you know, you're going to charge this much for a loaf of bread. You're going to charge this much for a pint of milk, and so on. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed, they came in and said, okay, that's done. We now have a market economy. You can set prices whatever you want for your bread or your milk or whatever. And the shops had no idea what to do. They had never set their own prices. They had no way of figuring it out. They didn't know how markets or supply and demand worked at all. And people would set the price of bread at $100 a loaf because they're like, oh, I can charge whatever I want. I'll raise the price, make it $100 a loaf. And nobody bought the bread, and so they'd throw it out at the end of the day. And the next day, they'd charge $100 a loaf, and nobody would buy it, and they'd throw it out at the end of the day. And it never occurred to them that they had to lower the price to get people to buy it. Uh, and I think that's the consequence of when you deprive people of the opportunity to solve problems on their own, to figure things out on their own. They get this kind of paralysis in their brain, and they can't figure out how to solve basic problems that the rest of us wouldn't even think twice about. So, um, read a certain way, your book could be deeply depressing because you're you're sort of red pilling us and, mm. and revealing that that all of these authority figures that we thought were helping us are actually the problem. So I'm now Keanu Reeves, and I've I've pulled the the wires out of the back of my neck. Mm. Um, what what do I have to look forward to? Like, what's the upside here? Well, it, it's like the twelve step programs say, Matt. The first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. So really the, the modest goal of the book is to just get people to think about the world a little bit differently and to say, oh, these people I thought were serving me are not actually serving me. They're trying to control me. And maybe you'll treat them with a little bit more suspicion and be a little bit more resistant and try to assert your independence a little bit more than you otherwise would have if you hadn't read the book. Um, so that's what I'm hoping happens. It's, a, it's an incremental change. You know, All change is incremental. 
and I'm hoping that we like, one step at a time we can kind of get back to a society where we don't depend on the government for everything. We don't depend on experts to tell us every aspect of life. Uh, and we start to think for ourselves again. I don't think it's that depressing. I think, well, maybe it's not depressing for me because I've had these ideas for a long time and I've gotten used to them. But I think once you get past that stage, you can realize we can build something better if we work together on this stuff. Your personal story about um, unschooling, I think, is is sort of the is is a great story to explain to people how it is that really beautiful things can happen when people aren't told what to do. Yeah, and and that that's sort of the whole Hayekian enterprise when he talks about spontaneous orders, like and. Things, things are going to get better. Things uh, are going to be created and there's going to be more prosperity and there's going to be beautiful music and all the things that, that free people do. But it's, it's kind of hard to tell that story because we don't actually know what's, how, what's around the corner. Yeah, and that's one of the difficult things about being a libertarian is people ask you, well, if you were in charge, how would this work? How would, who would build the roads? Who would, who would take care of the fire departments? How would all this stuff work? And the only answer we can honestly give is that we don't know because we have faith in these systems, these markets, these people, these individuals to work together and figure stuff out and to come up with solutions that I as an individual would never be able to come up with. And like I say, I tell people, if I were able to solve all these problems myself, I wouldn't be a libertarian. I'd say, well, just implement my vision and the problem will be solved. But I don't know how to solve these problems. But I have the faith that the 325, whatever it is, million people in America today, if they all apply themselves to these problems, they're going to come up with stuff that none of us as, as individuals ever would have thought of. And it's going to be better and it's going to be more efficient. And you have to let the process work its way through that way. But clearly, no one's going to get anywhere unless they purchase and read a copy of your book. Logan Albright, all s- our servants, our masters, how control masquerades as assistance. Where do we buy this book? It's available now in paperback and ebook format on Amazon.com. And while you're there, may I just suggest that you also pick up a copy of Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff, the excellent book by Matt Kibbe, New York Times bestseller. Definitely worth a read. And and you were the able research assistant. That's kind of when we met each other. Yeah, you uh, you gave me my first real shot um, working as a research assistant editor, trying to keep things roughly on schedule for that book. And I think it's a really good product. It was beautiful chaos. Yeah. And and a final shout out to our friends at the American Institute for Economic Research. They're publishing a lot of books that that I've really enjoyed reading. It's it's sort of free of the, the, the limitations of, of clickbait modern publishing. Yeah, they're, they've been fantastic. And uh, they are in an era when people are increasingly kind of turning away from books and going to videos and YouTube and stuff. Uh, I think it's great that they are putting out all these really thinky, thoughtful books that other publishers are not touching. So I really have a, a lot of gratitude towards AIER for that. Okay, back behind the soundboard. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.